Okay, church, if you could please open up to the book of Genesis. We are continuing this morning in chapters 10 and 11 of Genesis. I thought about being funny and saying just chapter 10, but I wanted to spare some of you the heart attack that would come along with that. That joke will make a lot of sense when you see chapter 10. We're going to be in chapters 10 and 11 this morning. And as we get started, I want to talk briefly about the idea of what it is to steal something and the idea that something belongs to you. Stealing seems pretty black and white. When you steal something, when you're a thief, you have robbed someone of something that belongs to them. You've taken it when they're not looking. You have found some way to deceive them probably in the act of stealing so that they are not aware that you are now in possession of something that was in their possession because it belongs to them. But sometimes, something you don't physically own can still belong to you and be stolen from you without you technically losing it. I think of your identity. If someone steals your identity, you still, that still belongs to you. But it's been taken and used in a way that you don't like it being used. Think about songs. There are certain rules for if you have a certain song that you've written. So many of the notes in a row cannot be the same as another song or there's suddenly copyright issues. Even if you originally, on your own, came up with the tune on your own. Or think about stories or movie ideas. These things are not tangible things that can be taken, but they are something that belongs to someone and then I take possession of it as though it is mine and that person still has it. We think about watching a football game, and there's a person who is blowing the other team out of the water, and then at the very end, the other team comes back, and they do what? They steal the game. That didn't belong to you. That wasn't yours. They would disagree. (laughs) Here's our main idea this morning. Only God is worthy of glory. Only God is worthy of glory. Of glory. I think you can probably see where we're going to be headed with this. The title of my sermon this morning is The Story of the Glory Thieves. Last week we saw God reestablishing the creation mandate, Genesis chapter 9. Noah gets off, and just as God established it with Adam and Eve, God reestablishes this mandate be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Adam and Eve were to fill the earth with God's image. They were made in God's image, and they should fill the earth with it. Well, after the flood, God issues the same mandate to Noah, reminding us that this isn't some intent just for Adam and Eve. It's for all of creation. That's God's intent for all of us at all times, is to fill the earth with his glory. This week, Moses, the author of Genesis, moves from the origin of the world to the origin of the nations. Our text is going to be Genesis 10 and 11 this morning, but our reading is going to be Genesis chapter 11, verses 1 through 9. So if you could please stand with me as I read from God's holy word, just as a physical posture representing what the inner posture in us ought to be as we hear these words. Hear the word of the Lord, Genesis chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you to illuminate your word in our hearts and in our minds this morning. Cause us to see and behold wondrous things from your law. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you, church. You can have a seat. So if we back up, back up with me to Genesis chapter 10, we are going to spend some time here this morning. If you look in chapter 10, verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now this phrase, these are the generations of, should sound familiar. Genesis 2, verse 4, we see the generations of the heavens and the earth. Genesis 5, verse 1, we see the generations of Adam. Genesis 9, I mean 6, verse 9, we see the generations of Noah. And after each of these, we see an account of something. So this phrase in the book of Genesis serves as like sign, signposts or bookmarks directing us through the narrative. Each one marks a major event in the book. And each list of these generations serves a purpose. It's usually to connect one person or event to another. It's like moving the story along. So then we came to this person. Now let me tell you what happened here. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, so then after this person, well now we come here. So this is kind of one of those stopping points, one of these marks for us. It connects Noah and the creation of the world to the creation of all the nations. If you look carefully at this list, look at verse 2, verses 2 through 5 here, he gives the sons of Japheth, one of Noah's sons. Noah has three, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Two to five is the sons of Japheth. Then you go down to verse 6, the sons of Ham, and that goes all the way down to the end of verse 20. So six, so two to five, sons of Japheth, six to 20, the sons of Ham. Then picking up in verse 21, going all the way through 31, we see the sons of Shem. So we've got all three sons there, Japheth, Ham, Shem. And then that's essentially, after that, you come down to verse 32, and that's the end of the chapter. So this genealogy is intentionally highlighting each of these three sons of Noah and all of their relatives. If you're the kind of person to write or highlight in your Bible, you might want to bracket those so that you can reference it more easily and not get lost in what you're reading. But what I want to draw your attention to is at the end of each of these sections, there's a repeated phrase. Look at verse 20 with me. This is at the very end of the sons of Ham. 
Verse 20 says in chapter 10, These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. So this section has bookends on it. The beginning says the sons of Ham. The end says these are the sons of Ham. And there's this phrase, by their clans, languages, lands, and nations. Now, I'll go forward to verse 31. This is the end of the next section of Shem. These are the sons of Shem. Look at the phrase. By their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. And now I think we're ready to back up to verse 5. I saved this one for last intentionally because it is slightly different. But listen for those four identifying markers. From these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. So as we read through this, we know that the emphasis on this is the creation of nations and languages, these clans, these areas, these lands. And I want you to notice that one of these sections is awfully short. Japheth goes from verse 2 to verse 5. It's just a matter of a few verses here, four verses. But then the sons of Ham and the sons of Shem get a lot more attention. Why is that? He is emphasizing something. Last week, we looked at Noah's curse upon Ham because of how he sought to embarrass his father. Well, do you remember whenever Noah is cursing him, who it is exactly that he curses? Go back and look at Genesis 9, verses 25 through 27. Who is it? Ham is the one that has made a mistake. But who does Noah curse? Canaan. Look for Ham's name in there. It's not there. You see Japheth, you see Shem, but instead of Ham, we see Canaan. That's interesting. Now, if you go to chapter 10 of Genesis and look at verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. So now we see maybe why there's this emphasis on the family line of Ham, because in Ham's line comes Canaan. And we know, if you know your Bible, you know that Canaan comes up in the Bible. It's the promised land. It's the group of nations that God says their iniquity is not yet fully manifest. So you will go into Egypt for 400 some odd years, and then when their sin is complete, you will come out and overtake that land. This is the Canaan we are talking about. This is where it stems from. Canaan isn't the only noteworthy name here, though. If you look through in verses 6 through 20, you'll see Egypt, where the Israelites would be enslaved. You'll see this man named Nimrod. His name is based on the word, the Hebrew word for rebel. In fact, some scholars even suggest we shouldn't read it Nimrod. We should read it the rebel. At that point, the rebel was on the earth, and he was a great hunter before the Lord. He's a mighty hunter who establishes kingdoms. Some suggest that when it says he was the first mighty man, that that meant he was the first king of the earth, not someone to be messed with. We see the name Babel come up in talking about Nimrod. This would eventually become the Babylonians, who would eventually come in and take God's people away. Other noteworthy names, Assyria, Nineveh, Sodom, Gomorrah, the Philistines. These are a lot of big nations and names for us to see. 
And it's a lot of nations that would be major rebels against Israel and the Lord. And they came out of the line of Ham. I think Moses wants us to see that in that family line. Because Canaan and Egypt are going to be major nations as we continue through the Bible. And so far in Genesis, we've seen this deviation from those who follow man and their desires and then those who follow the Lord. And we see it here yet again in Noah's family line. There are those that are going to rebel and they generate generations of rebellion. And then there are those who are going to follow the Lord. Neither of them perfectly in that category, but generally following the same pattern. So next, in verse 21, Moses emphasizes Shem's family line. So why Shem? Shem is where we get the word Semite from. When we talk about Semitism or anti-Semitism, this is what we are talking about. The Semitic people. They are people that came from the line of Shem. This is why in verse 21, Moses emphasizes to Shem also the father of all the children of Eber. The name Eber is where we get the word, any guesses? Hebrew. The Hebrew people are a Semitic people from the line of Shem. So Shem's family line is going to bring about the Hebrew people. And Moses, as he's writing Genesis, he's trying to connect creation to the Exodus. Why? Who are God's people? Where did they come from? Why are they in Egypt? Why is Egypt such a jerk to them right now? What's going on here? Why are they going to the land of Canaan? He is drawing all of this out for us here in this genealogy. Now, as he is describing this line, he talks about Eber and how Eber had two sons in verse 25. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And if you keep looking, which line does he follow? Verse 26, he follows Joktan. He didn't follow Peleg. You may normally reading over this be like, okay, who cares? I don't understand what the big deal is. If you remember that, right here at the end of chapter 11, he's going to go back and then he's going to follow Peleg because through Peleg comes Abram, the father of the Hebrew people. So in chapter 10, what we see here is the glory of man on full display. Man is having children, and these children are multiplying, and they're going out and becoming these great hunters, these mighty men. They're establishing cities. They're becoming nations and people groups of languages. They are filling the earth. Only something is not right. They are not filling the earth with God's glory. They are seeking to establish their own glory. It's significant that Moses chooses to give such significant attention to this man named Nimrod. Even as I say that, I can just sense the temptation for someone in here to laugh that I'm using the name Nimrod. Why is that? Uh, the students on the front row are dying. <laughs> Why is that? That's not a compliment today. When you call someone a Nimrod, you are intending an insult. Think about this. This man established kingdoms and nations. And what is his name known for today? It's an insult. It's nothing. He has been forever lost in history 
This is, the, this is what we have. And minus one or two other slight references later in the Bible to this great warrior Nimrod, this is basically it. But he really obviously thinks a lot of himself, and so did Moses, establishing all of these nations in these cities. How is he described? This rebel, this mighty man, a hunter, establishing cities like Babel. And that leads us into chapter 11. So all of that was basically a big introductory into chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. If you'll recall, in Genesis, we've seen this technique where he will start by giving this overview. He will come high up and give this kind of bird's eye view and look at what's happening. And then he will circle back around and land the plane, so to speak. And you will walk back through something, but see details up close and personal. We saw that in the beginning of the book with creation. Chapter one, we have creation narrative, kind of bird's eye view. Chapter two, we circle back around. We come into creation and we look at it up close and personal. That's what we have here in chapters 10 and 11. Chapter 10 is the bird's eye view of the spreading of the nations but it isn't quite all that it seems. We come back around to chapter 11, and now we are able to see a little more clearly how it is this happened and why. So Genesis chapter 11, look at verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. This should catch us off guard, because at the beginning of each of those sections, what phrase do we see repeated? Their languages. Why is it that they had languages, but then here we see that they had one language? We're circling back around. We've gone back in time a little bit. Man has settled in a place and started to do two things. Look down at verse 4. They said, come, let us build ourselves, one, a city, and two, a tower with its top in the heavens. The most crucial part of this whole exercise if you continue in verse 4, is the phrase following. Because we might look at that and say, what's wrong? They built a city and a huge tower. That's awesome. We do that all the time. Okay, look at our big cities. We have tall towers. What's the big deal? Keep reading in verse 4. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is a blatant act of defiance and disobedience against God. It's not that they just happened to be isolated to a region. Remember God's command. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Another word we could use for that is disperse. Go out, fill. But man says, let us build a city in this huge tower, or else we will have to spread out. It is deliberate disobedience. Let's make a name for ourselves, or else we will be dispersed. God's mandate was to fill the earth with his glory. And as God's creatures made in his image, instead what we're seeing is the exact opposite. They are remaining together for their own glory. Look what we can accomplish if we all just come together. Look what we can build. They are making a great name for themselves instead of making a great name for God. In essence, man is a thief a glory thief. He is taking what belongs to God alone. And this leads to our first point this morning for taking notes. Any act of disobedience towards God is, at the same time, an attempt to steal his glory. 
I'm going to read that one more time. It's a little longer. Any act of disobedience towards God is at the same time an attempt to steal his glory. At the heart of all of our obedience and disobedience is allegiance. We are acting in accordance with something. If I take out the trash at home, it is an act of allegiance to my wife who has asked me to take out the trash. Let's say I decide not to do that. Garrett, would you take out the trash? Okay, maybe I say that, and then I get wrapped up in something, and I think, well, I'll do that in just a moment. I'm going to do this first. In that moment, I have momentarily said, I will give the allegiance in just a moment. First, this takes priority. I am putting things on different levels of importance or giving things different levels of value. And depending on, in my heart, what all of those structures are placed on the scale, that determines how I will act in a given moment. That's why sometimes when we know the right thing to do, but we have this temptation to do something else, we've taken a desire for something else and placed it above our desire to obey. More important than to obey is for me to have a good time. So we act according to that allegiance to ourselves, essentially. A real basic example of this would be the Pledge of Allegiance. We stand, we salute the flag, we say the Pledge of Allegiance. Why? Because we are dedicated to our country. Well, at the same time, someone else in our midst who is associated and has their allegiance to a different country, they may not not act the same way. They have a different way that they act towards their country. They have their own allegiance. We see this with Adam and Eve. They belonged to God. God gave instructions. But then there was a potential for them to act against that. There was this temptation. Well, we could do this. And they rebelled. James 1, 14 through 15, describes the process of temptation and sin in this way. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then, desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So where does the temptation to sin come from? My own desire. In part of my spiritual growth and my walk as a Christian, I struggled and still struggle with sin obviously, but I struggled with certain patterns of sin in my life that were well established. I'd spent a lifetime building a habit of sinning, and after coming a Christian, there are some things that you know it's wrong, but it seems so hard to get out of that pattern. And I was talking to someone once who referenced this passage, and it really offended me, if I'm honest. I said, I don't understand why I can't stop doing this. I keep asking the Lord, and I just, it's not, I don't understand And he said, you don't really want it bad enough. And I remember thinking, like, you don't know me. Like, daily, I'm I'm asking the Lord, if I didn't want it bad enough, I wouldn't be praying daily. I don't understand what you're saying. And this was a passage that he referenced. He says, this sin comes out of an internal desire. So in that moment, when you fall short, it's because actually, you really don't desire strongly enough to change. What I had to start praying for was a different desire. And like a baby who is trained into something, I had to start with a pacifier. I had to find something else 
to focus my desires towards so that I could wean myself off of this other desire. I had to distract myself. Well, then over time, as I suffocate this other desire, it goes away. And now I can wean myself off the pacifier. I don't have this desire anymore, and I'm maturing as a Christian. The point is, our sin comes from a place of desire within us. Why do we talk back to someone? Because we desire to not look like a fool in front of others. Think about it. Everything that we do stems from desire. Everything. We are giving allegiance to someone in that moment. I'm going to say this again a couple of different ways. Whichever desire wins out at any given moment reveals to us who it is we are worshiping in that moment. When we act according to a desire, we're saying this desire is worthy of my allegiance. It's an act of worship. Everything we do is an act of worship. Even you just walking in the door, worship started before the service started. Your first act of worship in this building was just coming in the door. Said, this is worthy of my time to be here, to sing, to hear from the Bible. Even if you're not a believer, you don't know it, but in that moment, you are pursuing an act of worship towards God because you're saying, I don't believe, but I feel like I need to be here for some reason. God is stirring your affections and starting this process of turning your desire towards him. Everything we do is an act of worship. And what we are worshiping in a given moment is determined by what desire spurred us to act in the way that we did. We are essentially ascribing glory to something every time we act. The question is, to whom or what are we ascribing glory? Or even more pointed, are we stealing glory from one in order to give it to another? Let me give you an example. If you have a chance to take a trip with some friends, but the trip is scheduled when your children have some type of a sporting event, some kind of tournament, some, your wife has something going on, whatever it is, maybe there's something with work, you have a decision to make. And when you make your decision, you are ascribing value to one or the other to varying degrees. And whichever one wins out in the moment is what you're going to do. And you may think, well, no, that's not true, Garrett. Because sometimes I will really desire one, but I will end up going with the other one instead. That doesn't work. I would argue you really felt like going to one, but you still desired something else greater. It may not have been the entertainment value. Garrett, I'm not going to enjoy doing that. I would much rather enjoy doing this. Desire and enjoyment's not the same thing. Sometimes we can desire something that isn't enjoyable. That's why we work out. It makes no sense. Put your body through pain and all that stuff. It's because I have a desire for something. So in that given moment, we are ascribing value to something. It may not be enjoyment. It may be a long-term investment in my family, and that's the desire that won out. So when we are met with the decision between what God commands and what we desire, and you go with your desire over God's command, you have placed yourself at the center of your worship. And the problem with this is you don't belong there. God belongs there. 
We are stealing glory from God in those moments. What are some things that receive our worship instead of God? Our comfort, enjoyment or pleasure, our reputation, our pride. When God says, love your enemy, but you badmouth someone or scheme against them, you have decided that your opinion is more worthy of obedience than God's opinion. You've stolen the glory that is properly due him. We do this all the time, don't we? (laughs) And we don't even realize it. We don't realize that there's this war of desires in us. The Bible describes it in terms of the flesh battling against the spirit. There's these warring passions and desires all day long. And we think, I can get through the day with minimal to no assistance from God. I will just try my hardest. You will become exhausted. And you will give in. It happens to the best of us. This is what man did at Babel. All of this ties back to Babel. They decided to build this tower as an act of rebellion. In fact, a lot of scholars believe that this tower was actually something like a ziggurat, which is just this tall tower with this flat top. It has this ascending staircase around it, almost like a pyramid shape, sort of. You'll see that in some of our Bible story books about the Tower of Babel. And then at the top would be this altar where you go up towards the heavens and as an act of worship and either offer something at the altar or perform some kind of ritual up there. A lot of scholars believe that that's what this tower resembles, this Tower of Babel. So in effect, they are establishing their own religion with themselves at the center of their own universe. So what does God do? Look at verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. I believe the language here is intentionally descriptive. I read through it like that on purpose. That sounds like a mundane sentence. Go back and look at this again. And the Lord came down to see the city. This is interesting. And the tower, which the children of man had built. So not only has God descended to see this, but he references, Moses in God's word references the children of man. You can almost imagine God saying, oh, how cute. Look, they built a little tower. Let's go look at it. And coming down and descending and getting on his hands and knees and going, oh, well, that's real cute. Well done. Look what they're trying to do. Look at how big they think they are. Wow. This would have been a massive feat of human ingenuity and ability. But to God, it is nothing. Isaiah chapter 40 talks about how God holds the waters of the earth in the cup of his hand. The nations are like a speck of grain on a balancing scale that you get ready to weigh something and there's a little bit of dirt on there and you just kind of brush it away. That's what the nations are to our God. Number two, if you're taking notes, man's greatness is a speck in comparison to God's infinite greatness. Man's greatness is a speck in comparison to God's infinite greatness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25 says this. 
The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. He's saying before this, where is the wise person? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And he ends it this way, not to say that God is sometimes weak or foolish. What he's saying is, even if God had something that even resembled a moment of weakness or foolishness, it would still trump man in his wisest, strongest moments. If this is true, why is it then that we keep thinking my way is better than God's way? Why do we do that? Why is it that we keep working in our own power rather than begging God to work his strength in us? I read something recently and I could not find it. When I find it, I will send it out to, from the pastor on flock note probably when I find it. I will still try to look for it. But here's what it said in essence. What is truly frightening is if the Holy Spirit up and left many of our churches, they would continue to look the exact same way without missing a beat. God is our strength. Our strength is nothing, but we do everything we can to set up systems of life We do it not just in the church, outside of the church. We set up a system of life that really doesn't require God to work at all. And then we say, like, I'm depending on God. You may be depending on God in some things, but what does your life say? Is your life a life of dependence? We do a really good job of making sure that things will continue to function the exact same way whether God chooses to show up or not. And it's to our condemnation. The life of a Christian is a life of total submission to God. To pick up our cross and to follow Jesus is to say, I need your wisdom to guide my decisions and I need your strength to carry it out. That's why we just sang a moment ago that we want our life to communicate that the strength to follow your commands could never come from me. That's what that means. It's to give up living in your own wisdom, in your own strength, and to lean wholly upon the Lord. So this great God comes down to little old man and demonstrates yet again, not judgment, but mercy. Look at verse 6. Let me get back there real quick. Chapter 11, verse 6. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. God didn't pick them up and say, be dispersed here. You be dispersed here. 
he came down and confused their languages so that they would go, leave. God is acting through this, even though from their perspective, they have no idea what's going on. Why does God do that? He says this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Building a city and a tower isn't that big of a deal. Being a glory thief is a huge deal. And this is only the beginning of what they would have accomplished together. So God, as an act of mercy, confuses their language, scattering them abroad. Thus we have the nations in chapter 10. Here's our last point. God's discipline is an act of mercy. God's discipline is an act of mercy. Man deserved judgment for disobedience. Instead, what does man receive? Mercy. (laughs) Praise God. Just like last week, we see the ark and the rainbow, and people say, well, God is just this God of wrath. And I would say God is a God of mercy. There is so much more that he could have done exhibiting wrath and judgment against their acts of disobedience. In order for man to be obedient here, God had to intervene. Only then would man obey God and be dispersed over all the earth. And so it is with us. We were lost in disobedience. We were a part of the kingdom of man, the kingdom of the flesh, following our own desires. We couldn't be obedient, so God had to intervene. And he intervened by taking on flesh and walking the earth in full obedience and then dying in our place to redeem us from our sin. Jesus is God's intervention on our behalf. If God went through all of that for us, do you really think he's just going to let us live in disobedience after coming to saving faith? No, he's not. He loves us too much for that. He disciplines us. It's an act of mercy. He does this because he loves us, and we should be grateful for it. Students and children, as much as you hate it in the moment, be glad that you have parents that discipline you. It means they love you. I know you hear this over and over again, and you're like, yeah, whatever. You'll understand one day. It is an act of love to the rest of us. When we are being disciplined by God, it is not an act of judgment. It's an act of mercy meant to turn us away from living for ourselves so that we can live for him. That's what it is. As painful as it is in the moment, we tell our kids, it's for your good. Hear this, it's for your good as well. It's for my good as well. At the end of the chapter, Moses returns to Shem's descendants to finish what he started. Starting in verse 10 here. These are the generations of Shem. So we've gone through the forest, and now we're going to pick back up momentarily in the plain, and we're going to look at these descendants of Shem a little more specifically. And this time, when he gets to Eber in verse 17, 16 and 17, he lived 34 years, he fathered Peleg. And then verse 18, Peleg fathered Ru. And you go all the way down, 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 down. Look at verse 26. Terah fathered Abram. We are now going from creation, all the nations, to this chosen people 
in the line of Abram. God has not given up on his people. When they disobeyed and they rebelled and they built this city and this tower, we're going to come together. He scatters them and then he continues working out his purpose. He's not giving up. Church, this is true for us, both as a church and as individual Christians. God has not given up on us. Do you understand? He died for us. He will not let his work be abolished by our own desires. He will find a way. He died for us. He's going to finish what he started. The question is, are we going to embrace his plan for us and live for his glory, or are we going to ignore his discipline and live for ourselves? God help us if we choose option number two. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being a God of mercy. I confess to you, God, that I do not like discipline as it is happening. I often will try to avoid it and turn from it. Sometimes I ignore it. Many times I ignore it. But we confess to you and acknowledge, God, that you do these things because you love us. You put us through certain trials so that we might cling to you and turn to you. Whether it's in our personal lives or in the life of our church, today, God, we are submitting ourselves before you and asking you that you would reveal to us your will for us by the renewing of our minds. That we might test and approve what your good, pleasing, and perfect will is. And if we are ignoring you, God, show us, turn us back from our desires so that we might once again exist to bring you honor and glory in the world, not us. In our moments of weakness, God, would you be our strength and our wisdom, our rock and our redeemer, Would you turn our eyes towards you so that you are our vision in the day and in the night? That you are our source of strength and power, enabling us to live for you. This is what it is to walk in obedience with joy. And we ask you to bring about this work in our lives. If there is a soul in this room, Lord, that does not know you, I pray that you would bring that knowledge to the forefront of their minds. That they might finally turn, turn to you and from their old way of life to be saved from their sin. That they might know the joy of living for you as well. To those of us in here that do know you, God, 
stir us, shake us up, get our attention. For your honor and glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.